So John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much muttering among, about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has, uh, this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether I, the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of those, or not, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You remember this summer when Canada was on fire and it was really smoky here? Um, for, for like a week or two weeks or something like that, um, for days at least. Uh, the best that I can find on the internet is that about 10.3 million acres of Canada burned this summer and hundreds of hundreds of miles away. And there was fires in western part of the United States as well that we reaped the smoky benefits of. It smelled like smoke all over our region. I talked to my parents in the Twin Cities. They, sure, sure, it, was, it was mess there. And it was a mess here for quite some time. It smelled really bad and it was oppressive. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Smoke here meant a lot of fire in Canada or in Oregon. This text is an interesting text. And as I've meditated upon it this week, I found many different things that I'd like to pursue with you this morning, but we're just going to pursue a couple of them. And here's the good news of what we see here in uh, 
chapter 7, verses 1 through 24 of John's gospel. We see almost these conflict passages between Jesus and his brothers and Jesus and the Jews. And, but there's good news here. And I, I want to I plumb the depths of this, this passage to extract the good news for us here this morning. The good news of this text in its most basic form is that we can know God and his son, Jesus Christ. And we can know God clearly, and we can know Jesus Christ clearly. So today is October 31st of 2021, um, which means that 504 years ago to the day, um, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Castle door, sparking the reformation of the church. Now, we talked about that a couple weeks ago because we saw the idea of justification um, introduced to us in John's gospel. So that was a historical event that revolved around the understanding of justification. When we talked about the justification, it stands at the center of the reformation of the church. And the fact of the matter is, without that event in human history, the way that we're worshiping right now wouldn't be happening. Essentially, though, what you need to know if you're like, okay, reformation, what are you talking about? Essentially, what you need to know is this. We are, as God's people, we are accepted by God on the basis of faith. That's what the rub was. How are we accepted by God? And our answer to that question is we are accepted by God on the basis of faith. So those who have faith are joined to Christ, like they're linked to him. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust Jesus for for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've repented of your sin, if you trust him and have faith in him, then you are joined to him. You are united with him. And as a result, we have a bunch of different benefits that come to us. A a ton of different benefits that the New Testament outlines for us. Sort of like when you're interviewing for a job, when you're interested in getting a job and your your question, one of the questions you may ask when they ask, do you have any questions for us? You're sort of like, well, what about the benefits here? Health insurance, dental, vision, etc. There are unending and infinite benefits for those who are joined to Christ by faith. So in this text, we see another one of those things. But when we talk about the benefits that come to us when we're accepted by God, we talk first and foremost about our adoption as sons and daughters. It is the primary benefit that the New Testament lays out for us. For those who are accepted by God, um, it's not just, a, okay, you're fine, but it's now you're brought into a family. Intimacy. In relationship, a family relationship. And when we're accepted by God and brought into his family through adoption as sons and daughters, we now have this familiar relationship between us and God, our Heavenly Father. If you're a parent, you, you know what pleases you with your kids when it comes to your children and what does not. We have some rules in our home. And when those rules are adhered to, my relationship with my children flourishes in joy. When my, cho- when my kids choose to violate or ignore the standards I've put in place, it darkens our relationship. And there's need for correction. And there's need for discipline. That becomes necessary in order to restore us to proper relationship. The joy of our relationship, the intimacy that I have with my children, takes a break 
when correction and discipline are applied. My kids are still my kids. It doesn't mean that they're not my kids for a season. They're still my kids. They still came as a result of of God's blessing in my life. And they still remain my kids. I'm still their father. They don't earn their position in our family by following the rules. But their obedience does have bearing on the tone of our relationship. And disobedience might lead to a moment of corrective discipline. One that is under the umbrella of love, but one that is needed in order for our home to be one filled with joy and one that flourishes. Friends, we're not accepted by God on the basis of our works. You're not a son or daughter of God because of your good work, because of your law keeping, because of your obedience. You are uh, accepted by God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. You don't earn your position with God. It is a free gift given to you. One of the benefits, however, for those who are in Christ and who are sons and daughters of God is that we are equipped to live by the standards laid out by our Heavenly Father. And that the joy and flourishing in our relationship with our Heavenly Father is one that comes through adherence to and an understanding and living according to His standards. Last week, at the end of John chapter 6, we saw Jesus' words. And Jesus' words throughout John chapter 6 in the Bread of Life discourse um, had the effect of reducing the size of Jesus' followers until there were just the 12 left right at the end of chapter 6. Many had tapped out and a few pressed on. And as we get to chapter 7, note just in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because, of the, Jew, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The tone in chapter 7 has shifted entirely. Where the crowd of 5,000 plus at the beginning of chapter 6 was there and present, now things have, now things have toned down a bit. They've come down a bit. And, and the excitement about Jesus and his ministry has, has waned. To the point where we even have this interaction between Jesus and his very own blood relatives, his very own brothers. We'll unpack that in a minute. So Jesus has spent a lot of time in Galilee, and a lot of that time period is actually recorded in the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke. You can read about the things that he was doing in Galilee in this interim period. But here in John's Gospel, John chooses just to say to us that the Jews in Judea were trying to kill Jesus, so he sticks to the north in Galilee. If you look at the map, the the, the Galilee is up north and Judea is down south. So he sticks up here. Because those who were seeking to kill him were down here. But in the interaction that Jesus has with his brothers, his brothers try to convince him to head to Judea, essentially to make himself known, to do his works there. But Jesus says he's not about to do that. So when the Feast of Booths, the last feast in the Jewish festival cycle, comes about, Jesus privately then goes up to Jerusalem about halfway through. And after a short while, he heads to the temple to teach there. And this is where the Jews track him down, beginning in verse 15. 
there's an, an, an engagement and almost a conflict between Jesus and the Jews. Almost a conflict. It is a conflict. And so we should note that in this passage, two interactions, right? There are two interactions that give us the structure of this passage. The first interaction is between Jesus and his own brothers. Jesus has an interaction with his own brothers. And then secondly, we see the interaction between Jesus and the Jews. And in both of these instances, through our observation of these interactions, we can draw some conclusions. And what I want you to see here, much like my own relationship with my children is darkened by their obedience, but it doesn't change their status, we learn much about our own relationship to God the Father through Jesus Christ here. I want you to see the intimate link then in Scripture, in our relationship to God, especially in John's Gospel, how there is a stress here between faith and obedience. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. We'll unpack that in a moment as well. Where there's true obedience to God's commands and to God's law, there's acceptance by God through faith in Jesus Christ, not as a result of our obedience, but as the groundwork for it. So I want to show you how this works. So look with me at the text. Uh, Verses 1 through uh, 9 represents this interaction that Jesus has with his brothers. So the unbelief of Jesus' brothers is the first thing that we see here. Look with me at verse 5 in particular. We're just told outright by John. For not even his brothers believed in him. Boom. Right? Jesus' brothers don't believe in him. It's an explicit statement made there right in verse 5. It would seem that the unbelief of Jesus' brothers, though, was not limited to them. Again, I said the tone shifts from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Excitement about Jesus' ministry that slowly wanes throughout chapter 6 until we get to chapter 7, and it kind of seems like everybody's like, what's up with this guy? Is it okay? Are we, are, is it okay to like him? Is it not? Because John writes, not even his brothers believed in him. That feels like a statement, of, a more universal statement, right? That it's like a lot of people didn't believe in him and not even his own brothers. That excitement that built through chapters 1 through 6 again had waned. Unbelief around Jesus had become the prevailing theme. If you look down past this interaction with his brothers to verse 12, we learn that there were people who are muttering about him among the people. While someone, some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Now those two statements are, I think, representing the summary of the sentiment towards Jesus um, in, in this time frame. The people in hushed tones, for fear of the Jews, we're told in verse 13, made some quiet statements about Jesus. Two things. He's a good man. And a second thing, (laughs) he's leading people astray. One is a safe statement. The second statement is really problematic. He is a good man is a safe statement. But it's about as noncommittal as you can get. To say that Jesus is a good man is like saying, yeah, LeBron James is okay at basketball. Or Abraham Lincoln was, he's a fine president. 
Others were claiming that Jesus was leading people astray. Now, this is really problematic. This type of language is really problematic because of the implications. Because to lead someone astray is essentially to deceive them, right? You can't, you can't lead someone to something pr- wrong and, and it not be deception. You can't lead someone to believe something that is not true and not be labeled a deceiver. So down in verse 20, the crowd yells, you have a demon. Deception, leading people away from the truth, is demonic. It's always inspired by demons. It's always inspired by Satan himself. And so the deception that the people accuse him of when they say, when they mutter under their breath, and then they get up the gumption to shout it in verse 20, the deception they're accusing Jesus of is a deception that he is not capable of as the truth. He is the truth. So these opinions about Jesus arise. He's a good guy. Yeah, that's fine. And, uh, or he's leading people astray. Both statements that are, represent problems and represent the general sentiment about Jesus now. But if you go back to Jesus' brothers in verses 1 through 9, Jesus' brothers don't believe. And so this prompts them to make a few statements. They say in verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known, uh, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. These are, these are taunts. Because of what we're told in verse 5. These, these, the brothers of Jesus are taunting him. Even the blood relatives of Jesus were missing the point. They questioned the validity of his ministry because his numbers had waned. They questioned the authority of Jesus. The the authority that Jesus had because he operated quietly in Galilee. I think we should make a connection here between this story, the way that Jesus' own brothers speak to him, and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that's recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Because the same spirit behind what Satan says to Jesus in in Matthew chapter 4 is the spirit that lies behind the brother's statements here. The first two temptations recorded in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus goes out into the wilderness, he fasts and then Satan comes to him and tempts him. The first two temptations, Satan says, if you are the son of God, If you are the Son of God, the first one, command these stones to become loaves of bread and, throw your, and the second one, throw yourself down from the top of the temple and have your angels come and grab you. Look at the, look at the link here. Jesus' brothers are doing the same thing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Go to Jerusalem, make it known far and wide, if you are really who you say you are. Jesus knew what he came to do and how he came to do it, but it was not seen by those who do not believe. 
This is true in our time as well. Many people misunderstand the purposes of Jesus, including people who are very proximate to Jesus, like his brothers were. That's a level of proximity that's very high. People may spend their whole lives within the four walls of a church building and still might have a poor understanding for the reason for Jesus coming to earth and taking on flesh. What Jesus came to do is seen through eyes of faith, not through human understanding. Those who are not joined to Christ by faith do not receive the benefits of being accepted by God. One of the benefits of being accepted by God is seeing Jesus clearly for who he is and what he came to do. Human understanding says, if you're a hot shot, go prove it. If you're big stuff, get out there and show everyone. That's the approach of Jesus' brothers. And frankly, the approach that Satan has in Matthew 4 as well. If you are the Son of God, then prove it. But Jesus doesn't need to prove it. Those who are in Christ see that Jesus doesn't need to prove it. Jesus is God and therefore his timing is perfect. And Jesus has the authority to reveal himself in the way that he wills. And he has not chosen to reveal himself to those who do not believe. Those who are accepted by God by faith are those who see clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's good news for us. If you're in Christ, you have the ability now to see clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. An ability that his own brothers in this passage did not have. The second thing, though, that we see in the second interaction or conflict that, we, that appears to us here in this text, the second thing is the disobedience of the Jews. Now, after Jesus says that he's not going up to Jerusalem, in his perfect timing, he goes up to Jerusalem, where the people are muttering about him, and we talked about that a moment, and a moment ago, and halfway through the feast, he heads to the temple to teach. And what I want you to see is that the main point of this section of text can be found in verse 17. Jesus makes this statement, if anyone's will is to do, the, to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This statement is in response to the statement that the Jews make in verse 15. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus isn't formally educated, so they're wondering where, does his, where did he get this? Where did it come from? Essentially, the, Jew, the Jews are saying to Jesus, cite your sources. They're saying, validate your teaching. Where does your authority come from? Which is pretty ironic. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's word standing right in front of them. And they say, Tell your sources. The author of life, the creator of all things, the agency of all creation, the one who stood before them, was the one who spun everything into existence. He was the power that stood behind that, and they said, cite your sources. 
And so Jesus answers with this statement in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am say, speaking on my own authority. He's saying if there's an alignment between your will and God's will, you will discern properly where my authority comes from. If I'm just making this stuff up, or if I'm united with the Father. How do you know if Jesus is who he says he is? How can you trust his teaching? We can ask ourselves that question. And the answer that Jesus provides in verse 17 is to have a will that is aligned with God. To have a will that is aligned with God's will. You say, well, what does that mean? The question that we have to ask ourselves next is, what does God desire for me? And it's more simple than we may think. As Christians, God's will for us is that we would live lives of holiness according to his commands and according to his law. Now, sometimes Christians get caught up in this conversation. Is that legalism? If I make a statement that God's will is that I would live according to his law, wouldn't that be legalism? And the answer is no, because we're not trusting in our law keeping. We're not trusting in uh, our good works to be accepted by God. We are already accepted by God as those who have been joined to Christ by faith. If we're trusting in Christ and his person and his work for our acceptance by God, we're accepted by God on that basis. And then, and only then, again, are we adopted as sons and daughters and brought into his family and equipped for obedience. It would be cruel for me to invite any one of your children into my home and then apply my rules that are unknown to them to them. But for those who are in God's family, it is, it is made plain to us what God requires of us. Paul says it like this in Galatians 3, 10 and 11. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If you're relying on your works of the law, to be accepted by God, then you are under a curse. Because it is not on the basis of the works of the law that you are justified. Paul goes on, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The reason why you can't be justified by your works of the law is because you violated it, even in one place. And when you violate it, even in one place, you become a lawbreaker. And therefore, you need something additional. Now it is evident that as no one is justified, it is evident that no one is accepted by God by the law. For, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So justification is the fire and the law keeping is the smoke. It's like it's not the smoke that keeps you warm around a campfire. Right? If you build a fire in your backyard this afternoon and go out and stand around it, it's not the smoke that it keeps you warm. Paul says, if you're banking on your law keeping for God to accept you, it's over for you. You're under a curse because you can't keep the law perfectly. This is exactly what the Jews in this passage were attempting to do. They were attempting to keep the law into their acceptance by God. 
They were trying to become sons and daughters of God by obedience instead of understanding that obedience only came after becoming sons and daughters of God. Instead of seeing that Jesus came to freely offer them a way to become sons and daughters of God so that they could act in obedience is one of the benefits. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's spirit-empowered law-keeping, there's first justification by faith. And these two walk hand in hand. This is the link between obedience and faith. So what I want you to see here is exactly how this works out in, in this interaction, in this conflict. When the Jews want to know where Jesus' authority come from, comes from, his, his answer is essentially, you wouldn't know it if you saw it. You wouldn't know it if you saw it. Because it requires a will that's matched to God's will to know Jesus and his purposes. There was no smoke. There was no fire. Look in verse 19. Jesus says, this is very practical. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They're trying to kill Jesus. And this proves to us that God's law matters for us as those who have been adopted by sons and daughters. There's a right understanding of the role of the law. And Jesus will say it right there in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Before we get too far, though, no one has a problem with the statement I'm about to make. Murderers are not doing God's will. Murderers are not doing God's will. Murderers are not living according to God's will. The sixth commandment in, in the Decalogue. You shall not murder, Exodus 20.13. How could a murderer understand if Jesus was speaking for God if they don't care what God has said anyways? Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. And although they hadn't carried through with it yet, they would, and Jesus knew it. And they were liable to the judgment of it anyways. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus ties anger, bitterness, resentment with a brother to murder. Verse 23. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. The Jews were angry with Jesus. They were liable to judgment based on this. And so they thought they sought to kill him. How could, how could these men act in opposition to what God had said and make right judgments about what God had said? To say murder is wrong according to God's law, but then to seek to kill someone anyway would be half the, that's a will that's misaligned with God's. And to have a will that is misaligned with God's will, not be able to recognize that Jesus speaks for God. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 50. He says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. By seeking to kill Jesus, they were breaking the law and then also trying to, trying to adjudicate the law with Jesus. Note, notice here, though, that Jesus also preempts their objection 
that he's the lawbreaker. Because he addresses the situation where the Jews accuse him of breaking the law. But Jesus was rightly interpreting the law if you look back in John chapter 5. Jesus didn't break the law, specifically the Sabbath. When we see it right at the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool called Bethesda. And the law allows for circumcision on the Sabbath, but Jesus' divine act of mercy by healing a whole man was seen by the Jews' Sabbath breaking. Jesus judges with right judgment, therefore. In verse 24, he judges with right judgment because his will is aligned with God's will. The Jews judged with incorrect judgment or by appearances because they are murderers. They've proven themselves to be such so far and are therefore out of alignment with God's will. We think about alignment. If your car is out of alignment, you're headed for a ditch. And this is exactly where they were headed. So what I want you to see here as we close out this morning, I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Well, three really. Two are relatively quick and one is a little bit longer. But these two, three thoughts in particular, give us a a better understanding of how these things are good news for us. How these conflicts that Jesus has with two sets of individuals who are outside of Christ, who are not joined to Christ by faith, show us the benefits that we have as those who are. So the first thing I want you to see here in conclusion is that God has equipped you with everything you need to live a life of obedience. Where Jesus' brothers here who did not believe and the Jews who were seeking to kill Jesus fell short was that they weren't joined to Christ by faith and therefore didn't receive the benefits of those who have been adopted as sons or daughters. Now many of Jesus' brothers would believe in him later, but right here they don't. They're not there. And many of these Jews may have believed in Jesus later as well. We don't have that data, but it's very, very possible. But for where they stand here in this passage, they are unequipped for a life of obedience. They were relying on their works to accomplish something that they could never accomplish. But for us, for those who are in Christ, we have been given the Spirit of Christ. Friends, you're accepted not by your law-keeping. You're not accepted because of your good works. But you are accepted by God to keep the law. And by living according to God's standards, you reflect God to the world. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The second thing, though, I want you to see here is the intimate tie between a life of obedience and Uh, seeing Christ clearly. Or might say, a life of obedience creates a pathway to see Christ clearly. George MacDonald once said, obedience is the opener of eyes. The intimacy that I have with my own children is established and continued when they live according to the standards that I've given them in our home. When George MacDonald says, obedience is the opener of eyes, in other words, we could say, those who live according to God's law see reality for what it truly is. The Jews here in this this section of text were breaking God's law by seeking to kill Jesus, 
And therefore, they couldn't see what Jesus came to do, or who Jesus truly was, or the truth about anything for that matter. But the good news for us is that we've been given everything we need for obedience as those who are joined to Christ by faith. And sometimes we find ourselves, I know that I do regularly, find myself indifferent to the excellencies of Christ. Who Jesus truly is seems dull and drab. And I feel bored by it. If this is the case, what I need to do in those situations and what you need to do where you're indifferent to the excellencies of Jesus, when you're indifferent to the reality that he took on human flesh, that he came down from heaven, that he is the word of God, the word incarnate, the one who spun everything into existence, the one who lives and, and gives life freely and all of life is contained with him and he is the source of it all. When you are, uh, when you are, indifferent to the excellencies of Jesus, we should ask immediately that God search us and reveal to us if it is because we have ignored what he has told to us. King David says it like this, and I read this psalm, uh, Psalm 139, right at the end of that psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A clear view of Christ comes through obedience to God's law, which is enabled by faith. The intimacy is full of joy and is full of flourishing for those who live according to God, God's standards. Not as a way to justify us, but as a way to deepen our relationship and our affections with our Heavenly Father. Last thing I want you to see is this. Those who seek Christ clearly don't overcomplicate obedience. Don't do this. Don't fall into this trap. I think we do this a lot. I know I do. For those who are in Christ, those who are justified by faith, obedience is simple. It's simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Where the Jews failed to see, we must see. Jesus was not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. But the Jews were guilty of breaking the commandment to not murder. They thought they were acting obedience, but they had just overcomplicated the matter. Those who judge with right judgment in the way that Jesus talks about in verse 24 can see it clearly. Because this is the way that Jesus states it. An act of mercy in healing a man at the pool called Bethesda is condemned by the Jews while their own, their own uh, active plot to kill Jesus and harboring anger and slandering him openly was approved of. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a theological degree to see that those two things are in direct opposition. An act of mercy in an attempt to kill. Who kept the law? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see who kept the law and who broke the law. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that obedience is nothing more than personal. What I mean is that we often found waiting for God to give us some personal revelation about what we should do next in life. 
Now, obedience is something that we're held personally responsible for, and the personal application of it, of what God's standards are in our lives, are meant for us directly. However, obedience comes first to what God has explicitly told us in his word. God is very plain with us. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the law given in the first five books of the Old Testament. And Jesus says the law and the prophets are summed up in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your, all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, these are commands that are given to every Christian. Everyone who is accepted by God on the basis of faith and adopted as sons and daughters of God are given these standards. And if you're wondering what obedience looks like in any area of your life currently, it needs to begin with these things. Apply these things that God has said directly to us, to his people first, and then work out how these things apply in your given situation. Don't overcomplicate it. These are simple statements that God makes to us. They're plain. But if we, like the Jews, ignore basics of obedience, we will not see Jesus for who he truly is. The intimacy that we have with God will be darkened for a season. We will find it difficult to believe the promises of God given to us. We'll find it difficult to even see clearly the commands. Because law-breaking, which is sin, clouds our minds and corrupts our hearts. Do not ignore the simple commands of Christ. Just ask yourself questions related to the summary of the law. The law and the prophets find their fulfillment and love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. God, where have I sinned against you? God, where have I failed to love you? By having other gods before you or by worshiping things that are not you or by failing to adequately revere and regard you or by failing to observe God's appointed rest. God, where have I failed to love others in my own life? Where have I dishonored my parents? Where have I harbored bitterness, unforgiveness, and anger? Where have I lusted? Where have I cut corners or taken that which isn't rightfully given to me? Where have I told lies, even little ones? Where have I been discontent with what God has given to me and wish I had things others have? We don't ask these questions to be justified. We're justified by faith. We have been welcomed into God's family to freely ask these questions so that we might receive one of the benefits as sons and daughters of God to have intimacy with God. God loves you so much that he tells you how to have intimacy with him. He loves you so much as a son or daughter that he doesn't just leave you out there. Which one of us as a father would be, would be a kind and loving and generous father to not give our children any type of ground rules or standards? That would be cruel. To send our children out into a world that is ready with its teeth bared? without any sense of right and wrong. How cruel would that be? God is not so cruel not to tell us what his standards are. As those who have already been accepted by God, we have received these things so that we might have clear intimacy with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, God's ways are better than ours. 
we've been accepted by God by faith. And now he calls us his sons and daughters. And now he has given us the ability to live as sons and daughters. Friends, let's not seek to be wiser than God. Let's not seek to overcomplicate these things. God is gracious and kind. He will reveal to us where we've strayed and offer us correction, bringing us back into joy-filled relationship with him that will flourish for eternity. An eternity of satisfaction. An eternity of security. And an eternity of belonging in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that for those who are joined to Christ by faith, we do not rely on works of the law to remain sons and daughters. God, but we, as your children now who have been brought into a family, who have been given the title of sons and daughters, now have the ability to have intimacy with you. God, as those who are seeking actively to reflect you to the world, God, would we now today, as we go from this place, look diligently at our own lives, not overcomplicating simple obedience, God, but relying wholly on your word to reveal to us hidden faults so that we might continue to experience intimacy with you, understanding your purposes for us. God, we love you. But we don't love you because of something we've done, God, but we love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you that we are accepted by you. God, would you increase our faith now even as we sing and as we prepare to go from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.